Mathematics is all about a mindset shift. Here, math becomes a lens through which we see the world more clearly. Math is a vehicle that takes us to exciting new places. It's a medium through which we can experience life with more freedom and power. Come stand here with me at the edge of math. Let's throw the gates wide open and take a little journey together. I'm Amy Buchanan, your host. Welcome to Mathematics. Welcome to episode number four of the Mathematics Podcast. This is part three of a three-part series on additive reasoning. So if you go back to episode two, that was part one of the additive reasoning series, and we talked about ways to conceive of addition. And if you go back to episode three, that was part two of the additive reasoning series. And that episode was all about subtraction, which is not something we want to keep separated from addition in any way. We want to think of those operations together. Any discussion about additive reasoning would not be complete without discussing both of these operations, addition and its inverse, subtraction. So today's episode will complete this mini-series about additive reasoning, and it does so by expanding the natural numbers, that's the counting numbers, one, two, three, etc. We're going to expand those to include both zero and the negative counterparts to those natural numbers, those numbers which go down in increments of one, below zero, negative one, negative two, negative three, and so forth. And these numbers are what we call integers. And fair warning, (laughs) it's going to be the longest episode yet. I do want to cover this thoroughly. So I'm going to provide a little table of contents in the show notes with timestamps. So you can jump around if you need to get directly to a certain part or come back to it later. I'm dedicating this episode not to a current math educator, nor to a mathematician in recent history. I'm dedicating this episode to Brahmagupta. He was an ancient Indian astronomer and mathematician who lived in the 7th century, who was probably the first person, at least the first person we know about, to use and explore both of those things I just mentioned. By that I mean, first of all, treating zero as a number in its own right. That's huge. And secondly, to give meaning to those negative numbers and to develop rules for how they behave with different mathematical operations, such as the addition and subtraction we'll be talking about today. Before we get into today's episode, I'll mention a few housekeeping items. First of all, if you've listened from the beginning, I pretty much had started out trying to post an episode a week, but I came to realize what I probably should have realized from the beginning, that pace isn't going to be sustainable while also working full time and everything else. And particularly knowing that I want to continue these longer episodes that really dig in and draw out details about a topic in a way that it takes some time. I know these episodes aren't short and easy and breezy, but that's not my goal with this podcast. I do want to make these episodes organized and followable and thorough. In any case, the new plan is that episodes will come out every three weeks for at least for the duration of the school year, and then we'll see where it goes from there. 
And then a reminder of how you can support the podcast. Depending on where you're listening from, you can rate the podcast and leave a review. You can tell someone else about it that might benefit from this podcast. Also, you can always go to the website and sign up for our email list to stay informed about new episodes and check out some other interesting things and what we're up to. But I have something special that relates particularly to this episode. If adding and subtracting integers is something you'd like to know more about when it comes to the way I teach it, there is a free guide I would love to send you. There's a link for this in the show notes, or you can go directly to our website. And that website is mathematics.com. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D.com. Somewhere along the way in middle or high school, students are eventually required to learn categories of numbers. We learn that we have the natural numbers, that's the counting numbers, starting with one, two, three, moving forward exactly one at a time. Then when we include zero, we call them whole numbers. And when we include those negative counterparts, we call them integers. And when we include the ratio of any two integers, we call them rational numbers. And when we include the numbers which cannot be expressed as the ratio of two integers, we call them irrational numbers, and so on. And somewhat unfortunately, the process of learning these categories of number can turn into a sort of rote memorization thing, which is a thing that also can happen to just about everything we learn in math. But I digress. The thing about these categories, natural numbers, whole numbers, integers, rational numbers, irrational numbers, and so on, they unfold naturally when you think about it as a story of humans needing to expand their categories based on the types of operations we want to explore with our numbers. So I like to tell it as a story of how additive reasoning leads us to the negative integers, then multiplicative reasoning leads us to numbers as ratios of integers, and this process continues as we continue to need more from our numbers because we want to do and represent more things with them. And I'm going to tell a part of that story today. Now, as a disclaimer, I should say that the way I just laid it out is not the chronological history of the development of math. The actual history is that we, as humans, worked extensively with positive rational numbers, basically fractions. We worked with those for centuries before we really gave much thought to negative numbers at all, or even zero for that matter. If you think about the ancient Greeks, there's many famous mathematicians among them, Euclid, Pythagoras, those guys, Hypatia, to give a shout out to one of the females. All of that, though, was centuries before Brahmagupta. That's our mathematician of honor for today. The Greeks got way deep into rational numbers like fractions, but they tended to ignore anything that turned out to look like a negative number. Like when working with algebra equations, when there was a negative solution, they were just like, eh, we care more about geometry, which literally means earth measuring. And negative numbers don't mean much to us because there's not really any such thing as a negative distance. But again, I digress. Because this story I tell isn't meant to be a chronological history. 
It's just going to be a sort of instructive story about what if we didn't have any numbers, but we needed to discover them or invent them. (laughs) Okay, guys, I'm so tempted. Right there, I was just about to wander off into this fascinating philosophical question about whether we discover mathematics or invent it, because there's arguments to be made on both sides. But then I would have to say, I digress for what would that be like the third time already? And we've probably had enough digressions for today. Okay. Because what we're really talking about today is additive reasoning. And I want to tell a story about how our additive reasoning leads us to the need for negative counterparts to the natural numbers. And then we'll examine those additive operations from all the angles we can think of and seek to understand how they work within the set of integers. To start, let's pretend we have no numbers yet. If we're going to start from scratch and discover slash invent numbers, however we want to look at that, natural numbers are what we would probably first come up with. And it's because that's what we would naturally need to enumerate or count discrete physical objects. Discrete meaning there is precisely one whole item at a time, where the items in question are not something we would typically divide into pieces. As in, if I'm counting teddy bears, I wouldn't typically talk about having one third of a teddy bear or three quarters of a teddy bear. That would be weird. I would have one teddy bear or two teddy bears or 127 teddy bears or whatever. Maybe 127 teddy bears would be weird in a different way. But the point is that it would be a whole amount. Hang on to that word whole. We'll come back to it. Now, talking about zero for a moment. Zero doesn't quite seem as natural as a number. You wouldn't look at Jane over there just standing there without the context of teddy bears and think out of the blue, that's a person that has zero teddy bears. But If we're all sitting around with our teddy bears and I say, look, I have one teddy bear. And then you say, I have two teddy bears. And then John says he has 127 teddy bears. And then Jane sitting there teddy bearless might then say, I don't have any teddy bears. Then we might all think, well, that's a valid amount of teddy bears to have, right? We should probably have a number word for that too. Let's call it zero. And since zero is one of the legitimate entire or whole discrete amounts of teddy bears a person could have, let's call the set of natural numbers along with zero, let's call that the set of whole numbers. So we might come up with zero by just thinking about this enumerating or counting reasoning. But let's push things a little further. The next thing we would like to do is make sure that we have enough numbers to talk about all the additive reasoning we might want to do. So let's talk about the operation of addition with those natural numbers. Can we use that operation, applying it to find the sum of any two members of our set of natural numbers? And then will the result, the sum, will it also already be included in our set? Well, It would seem so. The smallest possible thing to do is one plus one, which equals two, and two is a member of our set. 58 plus 69 equals 127, and 127 is a member of our set. From the smallest natural numbers on up to the largest ones we can think of and beyond, 
we can think about how we would combine any two of them by adding and the sum would be another discrete amount that we would find somewhere higher up in the line of numbers, so to speak. And let's remember that. For natural numbers, the sum will always be larger than either of the numbers we started with. When we expand just a tiny bit to include zero, that's our whole numbers. This holds true for addition with the set of whole numbers. We can still add any two of them together and the result will still be within the set, only the sum might not be larger than both of the original two, it might be equal to one of them. Because there's the special thing about zero when it comes to the operation of addition. It's that zero has this property that we can add it to any number and that number we add it to stays the same or it retains its identity, which means that we can say that zero is the additive identity. The identity for a given operation is that number that has that characteristic, that when applied via the operation being considered, the number that it was applied to stays the same. I'll leave you to think about multiplication for a minute. What number is the multiplicative identity? Because the operation of multiplication has an identity too. There is a number that when multiplied by any given number, that given number retains its identity. But again, I digress. Again, <laughs> if we're counting, I think that makes four times I've had to say that. Rain it in, Amy. Okay. In any case, the sum of any two whole numbers is also a whole number. This has a formal description. When there is an operation which can be applied to any two numbers of the set and the result is still contained within that set, we say that set is closed under that operation. So the set of natural numbers is closed under the operation of addition, and so is the set of whole numbers when we include zero. But we have an inverse operation to consider here with our additive reasoning. What about subtraction? Can we subtract any natural number from another natural number and arrive at a natural number? Well, sometimes. If we start with a larger natural number and subtract a smaller natural number, we're going to be fine. Like 10 minus six. Our difference will be found among those natural numbers. In this case, it will be four. If we start with a natural number and subtract itself, as in 10 minus 10, that result is zero. That's not a natural number, but it is within the whole numbers. But if we start with a smaller natural number and subtract from that a larger natural number, as in six minus 10, where will we go? Will we tell ourselves, nope, sorry, we can't do that? By the way, please, no, don't say that. Don't say we can't do that. Here's a cheesy but real life lesson for you. Indulge me just for one more digression. What is that, five? Okay. Don't let the limitations of your current set of beliefs, such as say the whole numbers are all the numbers that you know about. Don't let that stop you from accomplishing something you want to do. Consider instead examining your beliefs and expanding them to help you embrace more possibility in your life. That can apply broadly beyond just mathematics. But let's try it here. 
See, this is where the ancient Greeks got a little stuck because they were, like I said, really, really big on geometry, as in earth measurement. That's the meaning of geometry. And when you're talking about measuring the earth, as in distance, in certain ways, it doesn't really matter whether you travel like from the south end of your nation state to the north or from the north to the south. If you've traveled between two points, you've traveled the same physical distance. This has echoes of what we call absolute value, and we'll get to that later. But then let's make things more relative. So if you're on the main floor of your house and you go up what would probably be like 14 steps to get to the second floor, you've traveled 14 steps. And then if you start on the main floor of your house and go down 14 steps, you've also traveled 14 steps if we're counting. But in one case, you ended up above the ground and in one case below it. And that will make a difference in your location. For example, in the view out the window or maybe the lack thereof. (laughs) And if you start on the 10th step, say, so you're partway upstairs and you go down six steps, you're still above the ground. But if you start on the sixth step and then you go down 10 steps, you've begun descending below ground. And this, again, it makes a difference. Or to use the example I mentioned last week, if I have $10 in my checking account and I write a check for $6, I have some money left and I'm fine. But if I have $6 in my account and I write a check for $10, That's a different scenario. But wouldn't you agree that both of these are scenarios that correspond to something we want to understand? So let's expand our number system so that we have some numbers to represent these situations. We're going to imagine that in the same way we started with one and added one at a time to get larger by counting, so to speak, we can go in the opposite direction and subtract one at a time to get smaller. And we can get to zero this way, one minus one, and then, well, why stop? We could next be at this amount we could call one below zero. But instead of calling it that, let's just use the word negative. It's a little unfortunate that we have this association with positive and negative, meaning good and bad. And I guess we can get lots of fun math puns out of that. But really, it can just be thought of as positive means we actually have something there, like those teddy bears or a length of distance in the physical world that the Greeks were so fond of measuring. And negative is the inverse of that. So not only do we have nothing, but it's as if we owe that many things or that above and below connection, or there are other applications of this as well. And just as there is no end to how high we can go, there is also no end to how low we could go down into the negative numbers as we continue descending below zero. And both these positive numbers and the negative numbers, they pivot around zero, which please note for the record, zero is not positive, it's not negative, It's not both. Zero is neither positive nor negative. It's that pivot point from which both of these sets of numbers can be thought of as emanating in opposite directions as on one continuous line. And one last definitional thing, and this goes back to that distance thing that the ancient Greeks were so good at. Sometimes we want to think of a point on that number line that we're imagining in a way that doesn't focus on whether it's positive or negative, but it just answers that question of how far away from zero is it? 
And so both positive four and negative four are exactly four away from zero. And we call that the absolute value of both of those numbers would be four. So the arbitrary way, I guess, of thinking about absolute value is to like drop the negative sign or make it positive. But the definitional way to think more conceptually about that would be to think about how far away is the number from zero. And then to remember that distance is always positive. <sighs> Deep breath. Are you with me so far? That's a lot, and we've only just laid the foundation. But now that we've expanded our set of numbers, and we did that, remember, for the purpose of being able to subtract to get below zero, so to speak, let's talk about the reasoning we can use with these new numbers with the additive operations of addition and subtraction. So we'll start with addition and see how this applies with our negative numbers, and then we'll bring in subtraction after that. Also, I'm going to be utilizing a concept I introduced a couple of episodes ago, so I want to touch on it again. I personally, this is inside my own brain, I like to think there are two basic ways of thinking about numbers additively. One is static, meaning without motion, like a snapshot frozen in time. And the other is kinetic, meaning related to motion or movement. So something like traveling higher or lower on that number line. So I'll be using those words static and kinetic, and we'll see how those can both be used and how they interconnect as we add and subtract. So starting with the operation of addition, I found that depending on the scenario, I might lean toward one or the other of those understandings of addition, static or kinetic. A static conception of addition would be like the two numbers coexisting at the same time, and you need to combine them together, like a merging. This will come up with negative numbers when you think about something like the protons and electrons in an atom. So brief chemistry review. In every atom, you've got your protons, that's your positive charges in the center, in what we call the nucleus, and then you've got your electrons, those are your negative charges that orbit around the nucleus. Actually, they don't orbit around the nucleus like planets around a sun. They sort of exist in varying places in a sort of probability cloud around the nucleus. But here's the main idea. The atom is one structure that contains protons and electrons. And the charge of the protons, that's a positive one for each, combined with the charge of the electrons, that's a negative one for each of those, gives you the overall or the combined or the net charge of the atom. So in a neutral state, if there's an equal number of protons and neutrons, the charge of the atom is zero. This is often taught to students or modeled with positive and negative counters. Now, we don't want students to get stuck in counting where we have to think of every number like eight as being one plus 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 one. And then thinking of negative eight as negative one plus 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 negative one. See why we don't want to do that? It's not the most efficient, just to say. However, the visual of those eight positive counters lined up to the eight negative counters, and then seeing that one-to-one -one correspondence of each positive one matched with a negative one, and then continuing down the line for as many as there are to check for any leftovers that didn't get matched up, 
that can help us to reason about this idea of what we sometimes call canceling, which is really just combining a number with its additive inverse. So an oxygen atom is one that has eight protons. And if my oxygen atom also has eight electrons at a certain point in time, since each proton and electron combine to make a charge of zero, eight protons and eight electrons combine to make a charge of zero. And that language I just used a minute ago, additive inverse, is what we also might call the opposite number. Eight and negative eight are what we commonly call opposites. But more accurately, we would want to use the word additive inverse. Inverse conveys that meaning of opposite, but we also need to clarify that we're talking about a certain type of opposite in the context of additive reasoning because there is also a multiplicative inverse, but I'll leave that for another episode. If you want to though, pause and think about it or look it up, how multiplicative inverses work. For now, if we add two numbers to arrive at the additive identity, that zero, we call them additive inverses. And I just wanna stop here for you to think about this visual. So this is one we talked about a little on the last episode. That was episode three, the subtraction episode, when we wanted to consider subtraction as difference. We did an example with the difference between five and three, which would be five minus three. So we line up five counters and we line up three counters and see how many are left over on one side. Well, what if we wanted to know the difference between two numbers that are the same? Say eight and eight. So we want the difference between eight and eight, which is eight minus eight. Couldn't we line up eight counters on one side and then eight counters on the other side and then do the matchy matchy thing one to one until we found out how many left over there were, which in this case is zero. There's none left over, they match up perfectly. So the difference is zero. Note that there is this sort of canceling thing going on with the difference between positive eight and positive eight eight minus eight to equal zero. Also, there was this canceling thing going on when we were combining values or adding when it was eight positives and eight negatives. And there we also ended up with a value of zero. So interestingly, this static view of difference when subtracting a positive from a positive corresponds with the static view of adding a negative to a positive. And specifically, we found that taking eight and subtracting eight from it had the same result as taking eight and adding a negative eight to it, which we can generalize as saying, subtracting a number, eight in this case, is the same as adding the additive inverse, negative eight in this case. This is something we'll come back to. I just wanted to point it out while we're here. So we were talking about static ways of adding when we want to consider adding negatives. And I would say this set of counters, positives and negatives, it fits that static idea, as does those protons they could represent and the electrons in an atom. But the main context I actually like to use when teaching this really also fits the static thought structure. And that is the financial concept of net worth. So with money in accounting or in business, you have this idea of combining your assets and your liabilities. 
So at any given point in life, I might have a checking account and a savings account and a 401k and a house worth X amount of money, which is always an estimate until you actually sell it, right? So those are my assets and those would be represented by positive dollar amounts. And at that same point in life, I also might have things like a credit card balance that I owe and maybe a student loan balance and a car loan and a mortgage against that house that I own. So those would be my liabilities, my debts, and those would be represented by a negative balance for each of those. And if I combine or add all of those together, I get my net worth. And note that the calculation I would do on this, it might involve addition if I think of positives and negatives, or it might involve subtraction. Like mathematically what I'm doing is I'm adding positive numbers to the negative numbers, but I might also just think about the absolute value of the assets and the absolute value of the liabilities and then subtract. Like if I have $400,000 in assets and $300,000 in liabilities, Technically, what I'm doing to find my net worth is 400,000 plus negative 300,000. But in practical terms, I'm going to probably just think 400,000 minus the 300,000 and subtract. Both are valid ways of looking at it. Now, when I'm teaching my seventh graders about this, what I do to kick this off, I actually do talk about the concept of net worth. But what I do is I put playing cards into their hands, just regular playing cards. The aces are one, numbers are what they are. Jack, queen, and king are 11, 12, and 13, respectively. And then we let the black cards represent positive numbers and the red cards represent negative numbers. And I do also introduce from the start this idea of thinking about black being like the money that you have and red being like debts that you owe. And I do use the words net worth to describe on balance what you're holding if you're holding a hand of cards when you combine those values together. And students intuit this very, very well. It's so much nicer than putting worksheets and lists of rules in front of them to start. See, this way I never have to teach them to memorize rules. Instead, I start with this concrete gamified version of thinking about the situation. And then I talk about what happens when you're holding various combinations of cards. And then they generate an understanding of what those rules are for adding signed integers, what those must be based on their experience. And that understanding brings power while memorizing rules all by itself can bring confusion. Okay, so it's time for another digression, but this is an important one. If students try to memorize rules with no context for understanding, it's incredibly likely that they're going to get really confused when they start having to, say, perform another operation, like multiplication, with signed numbers. And they find there's a whole other set of rules for that. Like, if you add two negative numbers together, the result is always negative. But if you multiply two negative numbers together, the result is always positive. The reasons for this are actually completely logical and can make sense to students when you provide them with experiences that bear this out. And I will talk about multiplication in the next episode. But if students don't have that experience, they won't have a way to think about whether they're using the correct rule. And they won't be able to gauge whether their results are reasonable. Because all along, those rules were just an arbitrary thing they memorized in their mind. They didn't reason through developing those rules for themselves. Okay, so back to the main story for today. Remember Brahmagupta? 
He was that first person in history we really know of to articulate the idea of negative numbers and what happens when we perform operations on them. He had this specific way of referring to positive and negative numbers, which I find fascinatingly close to the way that I articulate them on the playing cards for my students. He called negative numbers debts, as I do, and then he called positive numbers fortunes, or at least that's the English translation. I just say money, but I kind of like the term fortunes because it seems to be more clearly an inverse to that concept of debt. Maybe it more clearly connotes the positive nature of the amount of money versus the negative nature of the debt when it's money that's owed. Money's kind of more generic, whereas fortune versus debt gives us that good positive versus negative number vibe. But in any case, back to adding those cards. It feels like a static situation to me. So I'm combining what's here in front of me when I'm holding cards in my hand. But when it comes to the calculating to figure out what those sums are, I do mesh this together with the concept of up and down, sort of a motion idea that we might think of on a number line, like a kinetic way of thinking about it. So that provides something that works really well in conjunction with the static idea. And we can flow back and forth between these based on what makes sense to each student as they're doing their calculating. For the kinetic idea, along with the number lines, I like to use the concept of thinking about walking up and down stairs. So the main level of the house is zero, and then each stair we go up is increasing by one as we get into the positive numbers, and then each step we go down decreases by one. So from the main floor of zero, it means that if we continue going down, we're taking steps into the basement, and those would be the negative numbers. So that's my go-to kinetic conception, this idea of going up and down steps, or we can just simply go up and down on a number line. This is why vertical number lines can be potentially more helpful than horizontal number lines. Now we do happen to read from left to right, which is not a small thing, and that does help somewhat with the intuition of getting larger as we head to the right. But the idea of getting larger as we go up is maybe just a little bit more intuitive. In any case, if you're a teacher, use both horizontal and vertical number lines. Oh my goodness, I'm going to stop calling these digressions and just assume they are just a part of what I need to say. <laughs> But to get back to the cards, we will soon realize as we do activities where we're holding cards in our hand and we need to combine them together, we'll realize that having two black cards means you are adding the absolute values of those cards to get richer, more positive, so you're going up and up. But having two red cards in your hand means that you are, again, you're adding the absolute values on those cards, but you're getting poorer. You're getting more and more negative, down and down. In both of these cases, we had the same sign and we ended up finding the sum of the two absolute values. Whereas with a black card and a red card, there's a little back and forth going on. So picture this with me. If we're holding a black 10 and a red six, that's like $10 and then a debt of six. We can either think of six of those $10 being needed to eliminate the debt of six, that's sort of the static canceling idea, with the $4 left over, or in more of a kinetic number line style, we can think about that we went up 10, or we started at 10, and then we went back down six, retracing our steps. 
sort of like that removal strategy for subtraction, if we want to think of it that way. And we landed on that four. Again, we're seeing the idea that having a black 10 and a red six, that's 10 plus negative six, it's equivalent to starting at 10 and subtracting a positive six. In both cases, the result is positive four. So let's do a different picture. This time, let's hold a red 10 and a black six. So using the money idea, $6 worth of the debt, that's our red $10 debt, $6 worth of that debt can be paid with the $6 in money that we have, but we're still in debt. By how much? That involves, again, it involves finding the difference. We break apart that 10 into the six and the four left over. But this time, it's debt that we have left over. If we do this number line style, thinking about jumps on the number line, we went down 10 into the basement, so we're standing at negative 10 below zero, and then we go back up six. So that takes us partway towards zero, but we still didn't quite get there. We're still below zero, so the result is negative four. From these examples, we can see that positive 10 plus negative six, and then negative 10 plus positive six, they have something in common. In both cases, we had different signs, and we ended up finding the difference between 10 and six. And then we determined the sign of the answer by the sign of the number with the larger absolute value. In other words, whichever of those numbers was further away from zero. Or as I like to say it, when you combine those numbers, did you go further up or did you go further down? And this is one of those integer addition rules that we could try to require students to learn by just having it handed to them. But these rules make so much more sense when we develop them in these contexts of having to think about it, such as money and debt. Do I have money left over or am I still in debt? Or traveling up and down. Am I still above the ground floor or did I end up down in the basement? So we've talked about the operation of addition when we include negative numbers. We haven't covered it exhaustively. We could work on confirming, for example, that the commutative property holds true for addition. That's the one where you can add in either order. For example, with 10 and negative six, do we get the same result going up 10 and then down six as we would get if we started by going down six first and then back up 10? Okay, there, I guess I have touched on commutative property. It does work. We would land at four above zero either way. But we're going to move on now to our other additive operation, the inverse of addition, and that's subtraction. We've already started to see how subtraction is intertwined with addition somewhat, such as, let's go back to that 10 plus negative six. Using the debt idea, the idea of having $10 and then having a debt of six can be expressed that way as addition, now that we've decided to include negative numbers. But it's familiar to us even if we didn't know about negative numbers, because we also could have figured that out using our subtraction, using the number six and subtracting six instead of using the number negative six and adding. 
This is an interesting thing that arises for me, by the way, in my mind, when I think about those two equivalent scenarios. And equivalent just means literally that they result in equal values. But I think about them differently. See if this works for you the same way in your brain. When I think about having $10 along with having a debt of $6, I'm combining using addition. And I think about that statically, like holding those two cards in my hand. But when I think about subtraction, such as having $10 and then paying off the $6, this is more like a kinetic conception of the scenario. At least it is in my mind. It's like I'm seeing the six positive dollars leaving my bank account, which goes from 10 to four, rather than holding in existence at a point in time, statically, both the $10 and the debt of six, so the negative six, which is also a net value of four, but conceived a little differently. Okay, so that's interesting. But let's think a little bit more about subtraction in a different order this time. We've just talked about 10 minus six. Let's try six minus 10. This time it's like having $6 in our bank account and trying to perform that action of removing $10. This is the kind of problem that sometimes elementary students are inaccurately told you can't do that, which you can't in the physical sense. You only have $6, but students can understand. Often several years before negative numbers become a part of their required curriculum, that you can be in a position of owing that $4 that you would still owe in order to try to get that debt paid off. And to rewrite the subtraction six minus 10, to think about that as addition, it follows the same pattern as the one before. The action of subtracting 10 is the same as the static state of having a debt of 10. In other words, adding a negative 10. Well, is the same as might not be the best way of saying it because it's not exactly the same the way it plays out in our minds, but it does have the same effect. In other words, it is an equivalent equal value expression. Six minus 10 is equivalent to six plus negative 10. So we've tried 10 minus six and six minus 10. And by the way, note that we just realized that subtraction is not commutative. It does not give the same answer when subtracting the same two numbers, but the other way around. But let's try something different. What about negative 10 minus six? Let's start with a negative number and then subtract a positive number. This would be like having negative 10 to start, so our balance is already overdrawn. We're in the hole by $10. And then we need to pay $6. Not a good spot to be in. This takes us further down the number line into more debt. The result would be negative 16. It's equivalent to the static addition situation of having a debt of 10, that's the negative 10, and then also adding to that another debt of six. So for a total debt of 16, they both result in a negative 16. Okay, so now here is where it starts to get really fun. What I want to know now is, what is it like to subtract a negative number? Let's try this, let's try negative 10 minus negative six. And let's think about when we were subtracting positive numbers. 
we were having to pay out or to remove money from our account. So if we're going to remove a negative amount from our account, wouldn't that mean that we were removing debt? Let me say that again. If removing a positive number means that we are removing money from our bank account and that takes us lower on the number line and makes us poorer, wouldn't removing a negative number mean removing debt and take us higher on the number line and make us richer? It's a tiny bit convoluted, but let's think it through slightly differently. Let's start at negative 10, and then remove negative six. You can visualize that you'd have to travel in that opposite direction on the number line by six. It would take you up the number line to negative four. You're still in debt, but you are richer than when you started. You could also visualize having that red 10 in your hand, but it actually consists of a red six and a red four. That's your red 10, okay? If you remove the portion of the debt that is the red six, you literally take it out of your hand, what's left? Again, it was negative 10, that was what we're holding in our hand, minus a negative six. We took away the red six. What's left? The red four is left. We're still in debt $4, but we're richer than when we started. Okay, so let's apply that sentence we developed a little earlier. We were saying subtracting a number is the same as adding the additive inverse of that number. In this case, we subtracted negative six. So if this holds true, subtracting negative six would have the same effect as adding the additive inverse of negative six, which is positive six. So on paper, I'd write it as negative 10 minus negative six, and then rewrite this directly underneath as negative 10 plus six. Is that equivalent? What does negative 10 plus six mean? If we consider a scenario where we have a red 10, like a debt of 10, but we also have a black six, as in we have $6 of money to work with, isn't our net worth negative $4. This is what we'd expect. And this is how that works. Now, depending on the relative sizes of how far below zero we start and what the negative quantity is we're removing, we might not end up with a positive result. Like in this case, we started at 10 below zero and we removed only a negative six. So we would still be below zero. If we reversed that and started at negative six, and we removed a negative 10, we would end up passing across that zero and landing all the way up at positive four. The idea is that when you subtract a negative, you will always get richer, so to speak. You'll always move up the number line. Brahmagupta had a list of the way that fortunes, debts, and zero behave. And so his way of expressing these subtraction results was to pivot around zero. So, for example, he said that zero minus a fortune, so that's zero minus a positive number, results in a debt. And then he also said that zero minus a debt equals 
a fortune. So that's zero minus a negative number will always be a positive number because taking away debt always makes us richer. There are more permutations of subtraction using 10 and negative 10 and 6 and negative 6 to work with here or any sets of numbers that you would like, but they can be thought of in similar ways. I just want to point out that we've been thinking of subtraction as removal here for a while. So this has been sort of the kinetic way of thinking about subtraction, but we touched on this earlier, and particularly, if you listened to our last episode, we talked about it quite a bit. There is another distinct way to think about subtraction, and that is subtraction as difference. So let's do that here, but let's do it with negative numbers. So as a review, if I see 10 minus 6, I could think about that as two points on a number line and ask, how far apart are they? Which is another way of thinking about what is the difference between them. And I would see, statically, from where those two points are sitting there, that that difference is 4. Or I could do that inverse thing where I realize because of the nature of subtraction, I'm asking when I ask what is 10 minus 6, I'm also asking what number do I need to add to the 6 to get back to 10, which is a more kinetic way of thinking and sort of also required in order to get the sign right because I need to add a positive 4 to 6 to get 10. And this is helpful because when I look at that number line and I want to know what is 6 minus 10, I note that those are the same two points, the positive 6 and the positive 10 that I'm trying to find the difference between. And I can see that if it is the same two points, the distance is the same, 4. Remember, distance is always positive. So the distance between 6 and 10 is 4, but I also need to know that what I'm asking here is what number would I have to add to 10 to get back to 6? And to do that, I would have to move backwards down the number line. And so the difference between 6 and 10 in that order is negative 4. So it helps to bring back a little of that kinetic thinking about addition along with my static thinking about subtraction to ensure that I'm getting consistent results. And then here's where it gets really amazing. I love this. What if instead of 6 minus positive 10, I would like to know what is 6 minus negative 10? So remember, we're thinking about subtraction statically now. It's points on a number line. I'm asking for the difference between those two points, 6 and negative 10. And when you consider those two points, or really any positive point along with a negative point, so picture two points with me on the number line. One of them is above or to the right of 0, and one of them is below or it's to the left of 0. All of a sudden, those points are more spread out, aren't they? When I have two positive numbers, they're both sort of nestled together on one side of zero. So their difference is they're closer together to begin with. But if I take a positive number and a negative number, depending on the precise numbers, of course, but all else being equal, 
those numbers are suddenly going to be more spread out. In order to traverse the distance between positive 6 and negative 10, I have to think about the distance all the way from the 6 down to 0, and then further on down all the way to negative 10. It's almost like that distance is now 6 plus 10, isn't it? And you can visualize that difference just seeing how those numbers are spread out across 0 rather than together on one side of 0. So just as we said earlier, subtracting a negative 10 would end up being the equivalent of adding a positive 10. Remember, we started with 6 minus negative 10. And seeing that as a static difference problem with subtraction, we can see it's equivalent to 6 plus positive 10. And we can see those two pieces of distance spread out in that way, statically. While earlier, we were seeing that removing a negative more as a kinetic action. But either way, this is what we get. We see that using our static two points, knowing that the absolute value of that difference is 16, just to make sure we get the sign on the 16 correct, we would confirm that what we're looking for when we do 6 minus negative 10 is a number that when added to negative 10 would give us a 6. So we can see we would need a large positive number to overcome how far down below 0 we are in order to get up to the positive 6. 6 minus negative 10 would be equivalent to positive 16 in the same way that 6 plus 10 is 16. You can try this as a way of thinking about the distance between two negative numbers as well. Remember, two negative numbers will be nestled up to each other on the left or the downside of 0. So they're likely to be closer together than it might seem. What about negative 10 minus negative 6? So visualizing the difference between two points on a number line, negative 10 and negative 6, you can see that they're a distance of just 4 apart, both being on the left of 0 or below 0. Which sign does our 4 have in this case? Well, what we're really asking is, what would we have to add to the negative 6 to get to the negative 10? We're starting at negative 6, and we need to get even lower. So our difference in this case is a negative 4. And then let's try something. Let's go back to the subtraction as removal strategy with our debt scenario that we tried a couple minutes ago. We have negative 10 minus negative 6. This time we're going to take away the negative 6 from the negative 10. If my net worth or my starting point is negative 10, and then all of a sudden a $6 debt is removed from me so I don't have it anymore, remember that's what it would mean to remove a negative 6. And the result is that I've gotten richer by 6. Now my new net worth is suddenly negative 4. So removing that debt of 6 is basically the same effect as if someone had come along and given me $6. Completely different context, different conception of subtraction, removal versus distance, and we used varying combinations of both static and kinetic thinking in both. But either way, we got the same result. Negative 10 minus negative 6 is negative 4. 
We could do this all day long, you guys. The more we do it, the more robust our understanding gets. This is what gives us our freedom to think in different ways and our power to have confidence in the reasonableness of our results. But for now, let's come full circle with our story of humans developing number categories to say that this set of numbers, the positive natural numbers and zero, and the negative counterparts to the natural numbers that take us lower than zero, together, they comprise a set that is closed for both addition and subtraction. All the possible results of either operation on any of these numbers is contained within this set. Very powerful. And since these numbers together sort of form all the integral pieces for additive reasoning that we could ask for to complete our closed set, let's call them integers. And there you have it. Additive reasoning with integers. It's all so marvelously consistent and self-contained. And we didn't even need to bring in fractions or rational numbers yet, but we will. Oh yes, we will. Next episode coming out in a few weeks will involve multiplicative reasoning. And this might, well, let's just say it will, lead us to need to expand our set of numbers even further. But here's one more thing to leave you with. So as I was thinking about this recently, it came to me that that word integral from which we just developed the word integers, this word also pops up again in calculus as the word integral. And get this, integral calculus is also quite related to additive reasoning. Integral calculus is literally all about adding up things. Very, very, very many things that are very, very tiny. And it's not easy. But in a way, it is that simple. Keep on this journey with me and we'll be talking about it someday. But for now, don't forget, I do have a free guide for thinking about additive reasoning with integers and the activities that I do using playing cards to develop this. And I'd be happy to send that to you. Check out the website. Thank you so much for thinking along with me today as we pushed past those limitations that natural and whole numbers put on us to extend our numbers into the negative integers as well, to allow ourselves to be able to subtract whatever numbers we wanted and expand our understanding of our world. I hope you're able to do the same with any unwanted limitations you find in your thinking in any area so that you can have more freedom and power in your life. This fourth episode of Mathematics has been brought to you by the number four, which is equivalent to two plus itself. And since there are two of the twos, it is also equivalent to the number two multiplied by itself, and as such, is the only number x for which x plus x equals x times x. And in a somewhat related fashion, four is also the only number for which being the side length of a square will result in the perimeter of the square, which is four plus four plus four plus four units, having the same quantity as the number of square units in the area of the square. That would be four times four square units. And this episode has also been brought to you by mathematics.com, where we envision a world with freedom and power for everyone 
through understanding math. Check it out at M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D dot com.